I'm taking as my text this morning from the uh, second reading, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It's not the whole reading, but a part of it. And I'd like uh, you to take a look at that with me again, if you have your Bible, uh, to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 4 and verses 4 through 7. And beginning at verse uh, 4, I'm reading, in which the Apostle Paul, who himself was uh, in under house arrest and waiting uh, for uh, his trial before Caesar, wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This morning I want to talk about three things that make life worth living. Three things that make life worth living. Well, life is hard, and that's a truism. I don't know if there would be anybody who would actually argue, argue with that. And, and for some people, life is really hard, or at least the way in which they perceive it. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, 48,334 people committed suicide in the United States in 2018. That was three times the homicide rate in 2018. Indeed, in the United States in 2018, suicide was the second leading cause of death amongst children ages 10 through 14, amongst young people 15 through 24, and young adults between the ages of 25 and 34. A suicide in 2018 was the fourth leading cause of death for young adults ages 35 through 54. And the eighth leading cause of death amongst adults ages 55 through 64. In short, in the United States, we are three times more likely to kill ourselves than to be murdered by someone else. And then add to these uh, people who are contemplating suicide or people who have contemplated suicide and never get around to doing it. And that makes for a lot of people who may very well feel that life is not worth living. It's interesting to note that Moses himself felt that way. It's clearly stated in the Bible. He got so uh, got so uh, so overloaded with what was happening in the midst of ministry, actually, where he told he said to God, "Take my life. I can't take it anymore." And Elijah too, the great prophet, also had a situation that was similar. And he said he he rather die than live. Interestingly enough, it's Moses and Elijah who show up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John watching. But they felt like uh, dying. Uh, truth be told, I've, I've felt that way myself in a particular time in my life where things were just had gotten just so heavy that it just seemed like death would be a step up uh, from where I was and how I was feeling at the time, but this morning I want to talk about three things that make life worth living. And the first is, according to the apostle, is joy. Notice 
Notice again, uh, verses four and five. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so Paul tells the, the believers at uh, Philippi, and God is saying to us, I believe, through the apostle Paul this morning, to rejoice always. In fact, this is what the Greek bears out. Rejoice always. It's the present active imperative. It's a directive. It's a more or less a com spiritual command. And in the present tense, which means continuous action. Uh, so the New Living Translation puts it this way. Always be full of joy. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Or Peterson in the message, he puts it in even a brighter way. He says, celebrate God all day, every day. And that, the Apostle says, regardless of the circumstances, always is pretty, uh, 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 pretty all-encompassing. Indeed, the Paul, as I mentioned, uh, as we were reading the text, or just before we did, the Apostle Paul is uh, writing uh, from uh, prison, if you like. He's incarcerated. He's chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, awaiting uh, his trial in which he's going to find out whether he's going to live or die. He's been arrested for insurrection uh, to, the, uh, to the empire. Uh, he preaches Jesus as Lord, which was against the law. Only Caesar was Lord. Caesar was curious. He didn't know exactly how it was going to go. Indeed, as you read the first chapter, of his letter to the Philippians, he, he literally does not know whether he's going uh, to live or die. And yet the letter to the Philippians, the, the, the primary uh, 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 um, uh, subject uh, is, is joy. And, and, and Paul and Silas, uh, you may recall in the 16th chapter of Acts, where we have a record of Paul's first uh, initial ministry in Philippi. Now, these are the believers that were there, and he's writing a letter to them. Uh, but uh, he had uh, a bit of trouble, uh, and he was arrested together with Silas, who was, uh, uh, was a cohort of his uh, in ministry. And so we read in Acts ch uh, chapter 16, beginning at verse 23, it says, And when the Roman authorities had inflicted many blows upon them, they, they beat Paul and beat Silas, probably with rods. They threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep, keep them safe. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, which was a form of torture, making them sit with their bottoms on the on the ground and their feet uh, in the stocks. And the Romans could put this put their feet close together or put them far apart, depending on how cruel uh, the the, uh, the the prison uh, prison guard might be. And so their feet were put in the stocks. And then we read the last verse in verse 25. It says, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And so when he tells the Philippians, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. There wasn't any anybody at Philippi saying, oh, come on, Paul. Why are you telling us to do something you wouldn't do yourself? Richard Wormbrand in his book, Tortured for Christ, said something extraordinary. He said, don't feel sorry for the persecuted church. And then he went on to write. And, and, and Wormbrand, as we've mentioned on several occasions, it spent 14 years in a Roman, communist Romanian prison because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel or speaking against communism. He said, interestingly enough, that the Nazis who were in, uh, in uh, 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 Romania uh, before him uh, 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 had to, uh, warmed him up and, and taught him and his wife how much pain they could suffer 
and he found it helpful when the when the communists came. But he, but he wrote uh, in hunger and beaten and drugged. He said because they would drug them. They're trying to uh, trying to get information out of him and others where other Christians might be because they were under the underground church. In hunger, beaten and drugged. And we, we had forgotten theology in the Bible. We couldn't think anymore. An extraordinary thing. He said, but in our darkest hour, Jesus came to us, making the prison walls shine like diamonds and filling our cells with light. And somewhere in his, in his, his experience, he says, somewhere far away were our torturers below us in the sphere of the body. But our spirits rejoiced <laughs> in the Lord. And this is exactly what Paul says next. He not only says rejoice always, but he says rejoice in the Lord, in the, in the sphere of the Lord, or under the influence of the Lord, or in the Lord's joy, if you like. Uh, I think I quoted uh, David Taylor, who was a prisoner of ours up until just about a year ago. And he recently, in this year, a book came out this spring uh, called uh, Open and Unafraid. And, and David wrote this, to be full of God is to be full of joy. Indeed, in Galatians chapter 5, when the apostle uh, describes the fruit of the Spirit, or the, that is the product of the Spirit, when somebody is filled with the Spirit and the Spirit is bearing its fruit in a person's life, one of the things that the Spirit produces in that person's life is what? Joy. And then sort of to bring it around in a Trinitarian way. The Father produces joy, the Spirit produces joy, and it's the Son's joy as well. In fact, Jesus is speaking in, in uh, John chapter 15 and verse 11. He said this. He said, these things I have spoken to you. That's his teaching. This, by the way, is why, why Jesus' teaching is so important. I've spoken these things to you, he said. What? In order that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be made full. And how does that happen? Because our, his joy becomes our joy. And the Apostle Paul says that this sort of thing helps us to keep our head, if you like. That's my own words, but that seems to be what he says. Notice uh, verse 5, and he says, And therefore, uh, uh, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. And he says, the Lord is at hand. The, reason, the word reasonableness, uh, uh, epi, epi, akia, means gentleness or calm, a, a, a sort of a calmness of spirit, especially in the midst of trying circumstances. It is, if you like, the very opposite of complaining and blaming and judging and seeking or planning revenge. Indeed, joy is a, a great antidote to those sort of, sort of things that we too often indulge in. In fact, in this save it, the, the, the last of the Beatitudes in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the last is found in the 10th through 12th verse, of Matthew 5, and Jesus says this, and notice the place of joy within uh, what would be considered a, a difficult circumstance. And notice this language and Jesus's attitude, the one who, who has peace and gives us his peace and his joy. Notice he says, and blessed, you know what? You're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. When you receive a negative response for doing the right thing. I can't help that, but think that this was the source 
And the reason why the Apostle Paul had joy, even in, in a circumstance where he didn't even know whether he was going to live or die, he was doing the right thing. He was doing what Jesus had called him to do, and he was suffering for it. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such people, Jesus says. Blessed are you when others revile you, that is, who hold you in contempt and persecute you and make things difficult for you, uh, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They lie against you on my account, Jesus said. And then verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, he says. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so joy helps us keep our head, and it helps us keep our perspective. I think this might be uh, uh, very well what, uh, uh, what uh, Paul has in mind when he talks about uh, the Lord is at hand. You know, uh, that, that, that is to say that the Lord is coming. Uh, and when he comes, he'll make all things right. You don't need to have to go around judging people and and and, and, and uh, pursuing uh, vengeance. Leave that to God. God can handle that a, a, a great deal better than you. Just leave that to God. Because when he comes, he'll make all things right. Or as the New Living Translation put it, remember the Lord is coming soon. I thought about the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 where Paul says, and, and what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, and when he comes, he'll make all things that are wrong, he'll make them right. And so there's no need for us to lose our head uh, and, and lose our cool or lose our perspective because when Christ returns, He'll make all things right. And so the apostle says, rejoice. And so that's the first thing, joy. And then the second thing that makes life worth living is prayer. That is uh, verse 6. And uh, the apostle says, and uh, do not be anxious about anything. Again, all inclusive. Notice the superlatives, if you like, or words that have a superlative nature. Do not be anxious about anything. Uh, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. <laughs> and, and so Paul says, don't worry about anything. I was always, uh, always loved the way that uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll put it. He, he wrote, for, for, for some reason, he says, we feel that we're more in control of our lives when we worry about them. <laughs> right? We feel like we're, we're, we're in more control when we worry about our lives or worry about things. Of course, but of course, we know that that's not true. It doesn't, doesn't really help at all. And so the Apostle Paul says, don't worry about anything, but instead pray or tell God about everything. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And here, of course, the Apostle Paul isn't doing, saying anything new, but repeating what Jesus says in many, on many occasions in the Gospels. The one that came to my mind actually is a Luke's description or the setup for a, a parable that Jesus uh, gave. But in Luke 18 and, and, and at verse 1, uh, Luke says, And Jesus told the people a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart or not to worry. Not to despair. And so not to worry about anything, but to always pray, to pray about everything. Hudson Taylor, who is the founder of what is now called the 
uh, Overseas Mission Fellowship wrote something worth me mentioning. He said, let us give up everything into God's hands. Let us give up everything, our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence. Let us give up everything into God's hands. And then when we have given everything over to him, which, by the way, we often do in prayer, don't we? Lord, my life is yours. I'm trusting my family, entrusting my family to you. Lord, I, I've lost my job now. Lord, I'm trusting you as I go out and I seek for a new job that you'd give me just the right one and that you'd meet all of your all of my needs and the needs of my family according to your riches and glory. Right. Just entrusting everything to him. And then uh, he says, and then when we've given everything over to him, then there'll be nothing left for us to worry about. And so Paul says, don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. And then Paul says, and do it habitually, pray habitually. Mm -hmm. uh, and this again is reflected in, in the Greek. Literally what Paul is saying is, is, is be always making your requests known to God. Be always making your requests known to God. You have a need, be always sharing that need with God is what the apostle is saying. Or if you like, of making prayer a way of life and not just an occasional last resort. <laughs> Corrie Tin Boom asked this poignant question. She said, is prayer your steering wheel or is prayer your spare tire? That's a great, a great question. Is prayer your steering wheel or is prayer your spare tire? That is to say, is, is prayer the thing that you use all the time to direct the course of your life? Or is prayer only something that you think about and make use of in the event of an emergency? <laughs> Oswald Sanders, or Chambers, I should say, in his book, uh, My Utmost for His Highest, wrote, we tend to use prayer as a last resort. We pray when we sense there's nothing else for us to do. But God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. And so Paul says, pray habitually. And then, and then Paul says, and pray thankfully. Pray with thanksgiving. Now, now prayer and, and gratitude are, are seemingly, uh, indeed, in effect, uh, exact opposites. Uh, it, it is more, more or less impossible to trust God with all your heart and give thanks to him for all things and at the same time worry about things. And gratitude is a powerful thing. One might not think that, that gratitude has extraordinary power. In fact, we might think it's sort of a, sort of a I, I don't know, sort of a crutch or sort of a weakness. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says that gratitude puts steel in our bones. I think that's true. Uh, thanksgiving, gratitude has a powerful effect on the way we look at our lives and how we uh, respond to our lives emotionally and intellectually. Brene Brown, I've quoted her many times in her Netflix special called A Call to Courage, said that one of the personal characteristics common amongst resilient people is, is the practice of gratitude. And so gratitude is a powerful thing. And, and Paul tells us when we pray, to pray with thanksgiving, which we might not instinctively think about. That while we're praying because we have some need 
to do it within the context of thankfulness. Lord, I need this thing. I don't know uh, what lies ahead. I'm asking you, Lord, to give me wisdom and guide me through this. I'm asking you to protect me, perhaps in some uh, situation where you're in danger in some way. And then within that context and say, and thank you, Lord. Uh, Thank you. I, certainly, if Jesus would say rejoice and be glad when you're being misunderstood, falsely accused, uh, and, uh, and misunderstood, certainly the same would be true uh, of, of gratitude, joy and gratitude. And so that's the second thing, uh, to pray. Finally, the third thing that makes life uh, worth living is peace. Notice uh, verse uh, 7. And the apostle says, and as a result, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is, is the gift and result of praying with thanksgiving. That's exactly what the apostle is saying. And it isn't any peace. Indeed, he's very clear. He says it's the it's it's God's peace. It's the peace of God. A peace in the Greek is arene. It's where we get uh, the the uh, woman's name, Irene. Uh, the, the word the, the name Irene is Greek, and it, it means peace. And and Paul is a Jew. He no doubt undoubtedly had the word shalom uh, in his mind, and shalom means uh, blessedness, peacefulness, wholeness having everything that you need in which there's no sense of scarcity, that you have enough, uh, and so you're at peace, and it's in a sense of contentment. And, and it's God's peace, and so it originates with God. I, 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 do you understand, do you, are you grasping what I'm saying? When we're talking about Jesus gives, Jesus offers us his joy, not our joy uh, uh, that is uh, contingent on circumstances being just the way we are, or here the peace of God in which uh, we only have, often have peace when everything's going just our way. Here the Apostle Paul's writing. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, and he's talking about the peace of God, which he obviously is experiencing. It originates with God. It's the peace that God experiences. And it's the peace that God promises us. Uh, Jesus himself uh, promised the same peace, which is an extraordinary thing. I mean, Elijah never said, my peace I give unto you, or Moses. But Jesus is divine. Jesus has the, ha, possesses it and has the prerogative to, to give and the power to give it away. But famously in John chapters 14 and verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace. I give to you. And then he makes this contrast between himself, his peace, and the world. Not as the world gives. <laughs> Do I give unto you? Let not your hearts be troubled. What's that? He's saying, don't worry. Neither let your hearts be afraid. Or in John 16, in verse 33, he said, I've said these things to you. He's talking about his teaching. I've taught you these things, he says. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, Jesus said. But take heart. <laughs> Don't worry. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. And so Paul says that peace, because it comes from God, is a, is a thing that actually transcends human understanding. 
it's, it's hard to get your uh, head around it. And perhaps if you've not ever experienced what I'm talking about, maybe it is a little difficult to get your head around, uh, around, around it. Uh, but if you have experienced, you know what I'm talking about. It transcends the human uh, understanding because it's not circumstantial. You can have it when things are going all wrong <laughs> because it's a, of divine origin, regardless of what our circumstances may be. And Paul says that this, this peace, God's peace, is a safeguard. Notice again, verses 6 and 7. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so God's peace is a safeguard. It, it, it protects the heart. In fact, this is a word that was often used uh, within a military context of a soldier on, on uh, guard duty. And he's, while others are relaxing somewhere and not on their guard, he's on his guard watching for anything that might come and attack or otherwise uh, pose a threat to those whom he's protecting. And what, the, what, what Paul is saying is that God's peace will guard and protect your heart, your emotions, your mind, and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Indeed, uh, God's peace reminds us that life is worth living. And so life is hard. And uh, as I said, no one, I don't think, would argue with that. But God doesn't want us to be, want us, uh, to be overwhelmed by life. Indeed, he absolutely doesn't. Uh, as we've mentioned before, uh, there, there's uh, on, on 366 occasions in the Bible, God says to us, fear not. And there's 365 days in the year except on leap year when there's 366. And there's 366 occasions in which God says to us, don't fear, don't worry, don't fret. And that applies every day of the year, even in leap year. God doesn't want us to be overwhelmed. At the same time, God doesn't want us just running to him when we find ourselves in trouble. Indeed, God wants us to live close to him uh, so that when troubles arise, uh, we'll be ready for them when they do. Someone has written, God never meant for us to make use of God like people use drugs or alcohol or shopping or entertainment to provide some temporary relief and diversion from the pain caused by their troubles. God intends that we should know him so intimately as a friend and trust in him as a power so outmeasuring our own that we come to possess within ourselves the solution to our problems even before they arise. And this is why God has given us Joy, prayer, and peace. Three things that make life worth living. Let us pray. We thank you this morning, Lord, being reminded of how much you love us. We may, in so many instances, keep you over on the periphery, it's hard to remember how much you love us if, we're, if you're not nearby or we're not thinking about you or have you hidden in our hearts. 
But if you are close by, it's something that we're reminded of constantly. And that you not only uh, want to save, but you're able to save and to deliver and provide and so forth. The words of, of David that in the 37th Psalm, when he, he said, once I was young and now I'm old, and yet I've never seen God's righteous forsaken or his people begging bread. And that's the testimony and the prayers of a man who lived close to God. And you're calling us to that, Lord, calling us to joy and prayer and uh, uh, peace, thanksgiving. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear what it is that you're saying to us this morning, that we might respond and know all about, not just by hearsay, but by personal experience, the things we've talked about this morning. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.